0: Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience Amateur Hour. Thank you so much for tuning back in. Today, I want to try something a little bit different and tell you the incredible story of Phineas Gage. So I have my hazy little IPA, and I'm ready to get started. So born in July 1823, Phineas Gage was the firstborn child of Jesse Eaton Gage and Hannah Trussel Gage. He was raised on the family farm in Grafton County, New Hampshire. As a young man, Phineas Gage was described as perfectly healthy with an active and excitable mind. As he grew up and eventually found employment working on the construction of the Hudson River Railroad near Cortlandtown, New York, his employers knew him to be an efficient and capable foreman, a shrewd businessman, and a beloved co-worker. Like, seriously, no one had a bad thing to say about this guy. They all loved him. On Wednesday, September thirteenth, 1848, 25-year-old Gage was directing a crew of workmen blasting rock for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad. So in order to make progress, they would bore a hole into an outcrop of rock, fill it with blasting powder, which I looked up what this was exactly, and it's some sort of mixture of sodium nitrate. It's irrelevant. The key takeaway is it goes big boom. So they would fill it with blasting powder, and then add a fuse and then use a a tamping iron, which just think very long metal rod with kind of a tapered point and use the tamping iron to kind of jam it all in and then cover the entire thing with clay to kind of dampen the blast. Sorry. Uh, A really interesting uh, tidbit about the tamping irons is that they were actually made to the specifications of the user. And if Phineas Gage's tamping rod had been shaped any differently, I honestly don't know if we would be here to talk about his case today. So talk about fate. So it's towards the end of the workday, it's about 5.30 in the afternoon. Phineas Gage is packing in another blast charge. He's thinking about what he's going to eat for dinner tonight when he is suddenly distracted by the workman behind him. So as he looks over his right shoulder and he opens up his mouth to say something, the tamping iron sparks against the rock and ignites the charge. This massive explosion drives this inch and a half wide metal pole up and through the left side of his face and out of his head with the trajectory being just over the jaw and under the cheekbone. So this man, having had a sizable metal pole, driven straight through his brain and out of his head, was thrown on his back, convulsed a few times, and then decided to get up and walk around and just sit up within like minutes of the, of the accident, it's, it's honestly one of those mind-boggling cases that is near impossible to comprehend. The, uh, so the tamping iron was found about 80 feet behind the blast site, with significant amounts of blood and brain smeared all over it. Edward Williams, the attending physician who had been called to the scene, found Gage sitting on the lowest step of a hotel which was closest to the site, the construction site, with his feet on the road, his elbows on his knees, and his head in his hands. In William's own words, the wound was instantly discernible, with the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. The top of his head appeared to be somewhat like an inverted funnel, and when Gage got up to vomit, which honestly, who of us wouldn't in that situation?, A half-teacup amount of brain squeezed out of the top of the wound and fell onto the floor. And I have officially grossed myself out, and I deal with animal brains on a daily basis, so, (laughs) yeah. Uh, The doctor was understandably shocked um, that the man before him was not only alive, but breathing, speaking, explaining what had happened to him, and moving around the room. Gage was promptly taken to the third floor of the hotel where he was laid upon some clean mattresses and treated as best they could in 1848. Dr. Williams removed the coagulated blood, the bits of bone fragment, and uh, some of the protruding brain from the wound and then sealed it with bandages, doing the same with the entrance wound, kind of on his cheekbone, below his... uh, want to say left eye. So Gage then donned a nightcap to kind of keep the whole construction together and was placed under observation. He appeared to be clear-minded, if a little unsettled throughout the rest of the evening, but his health dropped dramatically the following day and followed kind of this roller-coaster-like pattern of getting better, getting worse, getting better, getting worse for the next few weeks. He would be rational and recognize his loved ones one day, and then descend into delirium the next. The wound became severely infected two weeks uh, after the accident, so much so that Gage was almost catatonic and a coffin was prepared in the case of his imminent demise. A second doctor, Dr. Harlow, had been brought onto the case shortly after the accident and now was the one who decided to cut the deteriorating tissue from his head and cleared out the cerebral abscess that was forming. Remarkably, a month after this, Gage was walking around the house and even onto the street. In fact, he walked onto the street so often he was considered nigh on uncontrollable. But regardless, it was clear that he was recovering amazingly, despite the odds. Gage was eventually returned to his parents' family farm in New Hampshire by carriage, which just seems like a god-awful nightmare to be jiggled up and down while your brain has been largely misplaced in your own head. His parents reported that he was able to put in a half-day's work and although his memory was slightly impaired, it was not enough to notice on a daily basis. He was blind in his left eye and left with some left, left side facial weakness, but overall he emerged in marvelous condition. Following the accident, Dr. Harlow made careful note of Gage's personality changes. He found that Gage was able to remember past and passing events correctly, as well as those that had occurred before the injury. In addition, he was able-bodied and generally appeared to have no deficiencies in movement or speech. In a conventional sense, he appeared to have come out of the accident completely whole. But there were some changes that could not be ignored. His friends and co-workers had previously considered him to be an efficient and capable foreman, now found him fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which had not been his custom. He had little consideration for his fellow man, and he was impatient and incapable of restraint when it conflicted with his desires. His demeanor became capricious and childish, and his respect for social conventions, by which he had once abided very, very well, completely vanished. Most troubling, he had abandoned his sense of responsibility and could no longer be trusted to honor his commitments, forcing his employers to let him go. In a sense, he was a child in his intellectual capacity and had the animal passions of a grown-ass man. I mean, I think his friends put it best when they said it, simply that he was no longer Gage. A medical marvel of his time and a medical marvel today, Phineas Gage is an awe-inspiring look at some of the most basic functionalities of the brain. His physician at the time, Dr. Harlow, successfully proposed that the neurological damage to Gage's frontal brain affected specific and dedicated structures that were responsible for the planning and execution of personally and socially acceptable behavior. Given his lack of modern experimental tools that neuroscientists heavily rely on today, this mining was amazing for its time. It was profound for its time. Dr. Harlow could never have imagined that in 150 years' time, research would explode into this brain region and into this question itself. Today, we know that the prefrontal cortex, the the site of Gage's injury, is implicated in controlling complex functions such as attention, personality formation, decision-making, and moderating social behavior, to name a few. The prefrontal cortex integrates processed information from various social modalities, from various sensory modalities, (laughs) and helps to form the basic constructs of memory, perception, and other diverse cognitive processes. I found this incredible paper by uh, Damasio et al., written in 1994, and for some reason my institution didn't have access to it, but I found this paper online because it was required reading for a class in a college somewhere, so, you know, I was very excited about that. But uh, in this paper, Damasio had gone ahead and gotten access to the skull of Phineas Gage, which had been exhumed five years after his death and was, I think, on display in the um, Harvard Medical School. But they had gotten access to the skull and photographed it inside and out and formed a model of all the possible trajectories that the tamping rod could have taken. And then they eventually chose the one that... uh, you know, fit the entrance and exit wounds most accurately. They found that based on their simulation, the damage included the anterior half of the orbital frontal cortex, the polar and anterior mesial, I hope I said that right, mesial, M-E-S-I-A-L, mesial, frontal cortices, (laughs) and the anterior most sector of the cingulate gyrus. Importantly, the damage did not include the supplementary motor areas and BRCA's area. So BRCA's area is uh, super important for speech production, which, you know, is, is important because this lines up with the data from patients with other forms of frontal lobe damage. So in these patients, their ability to make rational decisions in personal and social matters was invariably compromised as was their processing of emotions but their ability to perform calculations to move or to remember things and their and you know retained speech production and all that remained intact just like age this finding has led to the hypothesis that emotion and its underlying neural machinery participates in decision making within the social domain and has raised the possibility that this participation depends on one specific brain region, the ventromedial frontal region. Probably doesn't depend solely on that brain region, but this brain region is important in the context of this specific behavior. This region is also likely interconnected to subcortical nuclei that regulate basic biological functions, emotional processing and social cognition and behavior such as the amygdala and the hypothalamus, which those were actually both covered in previous episodes. So check those out as well. An important thing to remember is that it's not just the prefrontal cortex that was damaged. It's likely the connections and the networks that the prefrontal cortex formed with other brain regions that were harmed as well. And that may have more reverberating effects. A lab out of UCLA used white matter mapping to evaluate the extent of the damage that occurred in Mr. Gage. They found that considerable damage was localized to the left frontal cortex, consistent with previous results, and the impact on network connectedness between the directly affected and other brain areas was profound, widespread, and likely contributed to both short-term and long-term behavioral effects. However. They observed that while the tamping rod through the head significantly affected networks and network hubs, it it wasn't that much worse than a similarly sized brain lesion. So while it's kind of hard to draw any cold, hard conclusions from this finding, it does provide new insight into a remarkable brain injury experienced by a remarkable patient. And who knows, maybe with... New techniques and cooler visualization methods will get get, um, an even better picture. Following the accident, Phineas Gage's behavioral changes prevented him from resuming his position as a construction foreman. He was released into the care of family in New Hampshire and shortly afterward acted as a living museum exhibit and medical marvel in New York City and Boston. In August 1852, Gage was invited to work as a long-distance stagecoach man in Chile, driving a heavily laden six-horse coach along the, please forgive me, I will butcher this, Val, Val Valparicio-Santiago route. Observations of his behavior there say that he didn't suffer any impairment to his mental facilities, indicating that these behavioral changes may have, in fact, been kind of temporary, which is mind-blowing because he literally lost like 4% of his cerebral cortex. I can't imagine losing that much of your brain and and those effects being temporary. But, you know, our brains are remarkably resilient and plastic to a certain extent, so it's entirely possible that his brain may have rewired later in his life and he may have regained some of that functionality. Obviously, given that it happened in like the 1850s, there's not a lot of information out there for us to, to really draw conclusions, but it's still something that's really cool to think about. Eventually, his health began to fail, and he moved to San Francisco to be closer to his mother and sister, who had also relocated there. A year later, Gage began to have epileptic seizures, which increased in frequency and intensity until he passed away on May 20th, 1860, at the age of 36. He was very, very young. Many speculate that Gage's horrendous injury eventually led to his death, although the mechanism or effect of that are largely unknown. But I think it would be remiss to, to think that the seizures were not caused by his death. His iron rod through brain situation, but I don't really know. Five years later, his skull was exhumed and his tamping iron, with some sources say he was buried with, were given to Harvard Medical School and still retain the fascinations of researchers and doctors today. Phineas Gage was a fascinating case that one that still drives scientists to implement modern techniques to understand what happened to him and why he changed. These findings have, in some ways, driven the questions that we ask today, and I just wanted to take this episode to kind of talk about and honor someone who has made an incredible contribution to science. That's it. That is the life and death and all the in-betweens of the man that is Phineas Gage I hope that you have enjoyed the episode and learned something new I have cited all of my relevant sources and papers in the show notes and you should keep out uh, you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some really cool visualizations that I found of the injury site and the trajectory of the rod as well as, as you know, some photos of Phineas Gage, the the man. He's a he was actually surprisingly handsome. So, yeah, check that out. Please uh, rate and review. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please don't have complaints. But if you do, please let me know. I would I really need the feedback. Please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail or DM me at neuroscience amateur hour on instagram this podcast is available on pretty much any platform i can think of so please recommend it to your friends and your loved ones also if you have something you really want to learn about please contact me and you'll probably see an episode about it soon happy researching and i hope to see you again